Hi everyone, this is Olga, and I'm really excited to be here with you. We have a special guest. We're going to talk about securities uh, and blockchain and digital assets. Um, about seven years ago, when um, I, I love disruptive technologies, uh, when I dis discovered smart contracts and blockchain, um, I got really excited and fascinated um, about securities law. Um, you know that um, an IP lawyer gone bad when, when she discovers securities law for the first time in her life and gets excited about it. And so I've become an amateur you know, student and um, uh, explorer of securities law. Um, and I love to uh, talk to, to lawyers who spend their, their entire career uh, understanding securities law because it is very complex. Um, and I learn from the conversations every time. So today I have a very special guest. We're going to talk in depth about what is a digital asset and specifically what are the digital assets that are regulated by Securities Exchange Commission. And I have a very special guest, uh, Louis. Um, welcome. And uh, please introduce yourself. Hey, uh, thank you so much for uh, having me here. Um, this is great. Um, I'm Lewis Cohen. I'm a co-founder of a boutique law firm uh, that focuses on clients working in the digital asset space called DLX Law. Um, I'm based in uh, New York City. I'm a native New Yorker and love uh, talking about securities law and blockchain. So obviously I've come to the right place. <laughs> yeah, we'll hop on. Before uh, your uh, current uh adventures uh, with your, your, your law firm. Uh, where were you before? What were you doing before? So, yeah, so it's interesting. Um, I love getting people's, um, you know, kind of uh, background story, how they came into blockchain and how, especially for lawyers, how, how they discovered it. In my case, um, I had been doing securities law at two very large global law firms for, for many years. Um, uh, and um, a lot of my practice involved uh, securitization. And as folks may recall, in the great financial crisis, you know, securitization in many ways broke the financial system. And um, so uh, after we started recovering, um, I became very involved in policy issues around the markets, securitization, asset-backed securities, mortgage-backed securities, things folks have heard of, and how do we make it better? And along that point, I kind of discovered blockchain and thought, wow, this is fantastic. It's like, you know, getting chocolate and peanut butter together. Let's let's take these two complex things and see if they can address some of the issues that that we had in the financial crisis. So I actually want to because I would have a lot of listeners who like thinking about their career options. And so that that journey from two major global law firms to something you call your own. Um, how did you make that decision? That's a great question. You know, Olga, um, all important decisions kind of come to you rather than you coming to them. I had started much earlier in my career at a very traditional Wall Street law firm. And the opportunity came up in very early on uh, to go to one of the London-based firms that had started hiring U.S. lawyers. And just very instinctively, I said, that's a great idea. You know, you should do that. And that kind of took my career in a very exciting direction. It happened again around blockchain where it, it just became clear to me that so much was going to happen. And like you, you know, discovering what, as a lawyer what smart contracts can do and all these other things that I felt kind of very compelled. And I, I founded a blockchain group at my law firm and I talked to clients and proselytized, but, you know, it didn't feel like the right fit. It was like there was a shoe, but it was the wrong size. And I realized that I was what I was going to need 
to do this, you know, successfully was a separate firm where really I could fulfill this vision. Oh, I love that. I, I usually, the analogy I usually give is there's two ways to look at, at the pants when you have outgrown them. You can look at your ankles and say, oh my God, what's wrong with my pants? Or you can say, it's time to get a new pair. Um, and that reframe really makes a huge difference. Um, you mentioned secur securization. You know, for people who may or may not know exactly what it is, tell us what it is and how it actually become connected to blockchain. You know, that's a fantastic question, Olga. And I think it, it's really actually kind of at the core of everything we'll be talking about. It, securitization uh, was developed really in the kind of late 70s, early 80s. The idea that banks had these illiquid assets, uh, typically mortgages or other, you know, personal loans, um, and they kind of had to hold them to maturity. And it was a very inefficient system. And so people said, well, if we if we pool these these uh, assets up, we could actually have a win-win by creating a financial instrument that's right for you know different kinds of investors and doesn't require banks to just kind of sit there with 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 dead assets. And so that became you know you know uh, a greater and greater feature but really what we're talking about here is something very similar to with digital assets which is creating liquidity and creating instruments that can be traded in new and different ways and reallocating capital in new and different ways and so you know there's there's definitely a, a line of connection between some of the early securitization transactions and some of what's happened with digital assets which we'll, we'll definitely get into more detail on you know, I googled the um, digital asset, and you know, it's 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 there's a lot. One, there's a lot of definitions. Help me understand when um, securities lawyer talks about digital asset. What uh, what does he mean by that? Surely, it doesn't mean anything digital. That just seems everything. Yeah, there's so much, you know, confusion and in some cases misinformation out there, Olga. It, it is and can be a bit frustrating in, in kind of both directions on um, people uh, that kind of are aggressively everything's a security. People are aggressively nothing's a security and, and every which thing in between. In terms of what is a digital asset, I'd actually give a shout out which, you know, this is about the driest thing a lawyer can do. But I'm going to give a shout out to the Uniform Law Commission. And I'll just quick pop quiz for you. Do you know who the Uniform Law Commission are, Olga? <laughs> I, I do not. But I'm please not. tell, 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 tell. So, the, so the Uniform Law Commission. So obviously, um, you know, we have federal laws, we have state laws, and some state laws are very bespoke to the particular state. But of course, many are uniform, most well known probably to, to lawyers are the Uniform Commercial Code. But there are a wide variety of uniform uh, laws that, that generally try to create a harmonious position among the 50 states so that when you move from state to state, you're not facing a completely new uh, set of laws. The Uniform Law Commission is the body composed generally of scholars and former practitioners and, you know, really you know, very, very experienced lawyers that try and help shape and develop the uniform laws among our states. And ultimately, when they endorse a particular uniform law, it has no direct uh, impact, but um, it is then presented to states to adopt. And the hope is that most, if not all states, will adopt the law in more or less the form that the ULC uh, has promulgated. Now, so you so might, like in, uh, uh, the commercial code, right? Yes, that, exactly. That, that many states code. have adopted has been uh, recommended by that body. 
Right. right. Now you might say, what's that got to do with anything? Nice tangent, little story. Now I know what the Uniform Law Commission is. What's that got to do with anything? Fair question. Hey, yeah. I, 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 I like bits of information. So you don't even have to justify, but yes, do tell more. <laughs> but it does, it does have to do with this conversation. And that is because your initial question was the, a foundational one and, and absolutely critical. What's a digital asset? Well, there had not been a really good definition of digital asset, either in the United States or elsewhere, because obviously digital assets exist everywhere. And, you know, sometimes as U.S. lawyers, we get a little U.S. centric. You know, there are other other jurisdictions that have to grapple with this, but there's not been a good definition. The Uniform Law Commission went at this and have uh, proposed a new article to the UCC, which would be Article 12 of the UCC. And this is publicly available on their website. And um, they have proposed a critical new definition, which is controllable electronic record. And the ULC's objective here um, was to come up with a definition that um, could actually be not technology specific, because we don't know. Right now we're using blockchain and a lot of things, but, you know, uh, technology has changed. Some things, you know, some blockchains are different from others. Distributed acyclic graphs or or DAGs are, are a different kind of technology that's similar to blockchain, but different. So, so the ULC wanted to come up with a term that could stand the test of time and capture what we mean by digital asset. And so they use this term controllable uh, electronic record. And I wanna give a, a shout out to a great friend and fantastic lawyer, um, Drew Hinkus, who I don't know if you know, uh, Olga, but Drew is a part of, uh, together with a, quite a large number of others involved in the drafting process. And certainly I, I'm sure contributed greatly. So um, a shout out to, to Drew on that. So so that's kind of controllable electronic record. And I'll pause there just to, 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 to chew on that for a second, but that is an important stepping stone in our thinking of what we're talking about. Controllable electronic record. I'm still, I'm still digesting that, that I, I can't say that it truly clarified everything for me. Well, I have to explain what, what it's <laughs> But it I, li I like term. the effort to making it um, technology agnostic. And I actually want to talk a little bit more about it. But let, let, let's go on. I, um, I'm at the, the edge of my seat. <laughs> well, that, you know, that's not easy for a securities lawyer to do. So um, get folks at the edge of their seat. So controlled electronic record. And when you think about the, 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 the original, of course, digital asset Bitcoin, right? Well, what exactly is it, you know, that you have if you own a Bitcoin? And, and people who are reasonably sophisticated around Bitcoin understand that really what you have is an unspent transaction output, generally referred to as a UTXO. Um, that is um, the ability to, um, if, if you have a UTXO in some number associated with some public address to which, for which you have a private key, you can give instruction and instruction to the Bitcoin network to say, reduce the uh, amount of the UTXOs in my public address and increase that amount in another public address. And that's really all you own is this ability to control this record, right? The record of the ledger keeps getting updated in the case of Bitcoin approximately every 10 minutes and it has a state and that state sort of moves like ratchet-like ratchet uh, between iterations. And so when you have, when you own Bitcoin, the ledger of the Bitcoin blockchain says for your public address, there's, you know, 10 Bitcoin associated with that. That would be a nice thing because we'd be doing pretty well if we had 10 Bitcoin uh, associated with the public address we can control. 
the controllable electronic record, that's a record. The Bitcoin blockchain is a record. It's controllable. It's controllable by having the unique private key that allows you to give a valid instruction with respect to that particular public address. Um, and as a result, it's a controllable electronic record. So that's Bitcoin. And that same sort of principle can be applied, of course, to the Ethereum network or a wide variety of other digital assets. And so I think, you know, as people come to this, it's as good a starting point as any when we talk about digital assets. It's a controllable electronic record. I see. Um, and um, so that makes it very different from any digital file, right? From Olga's yeah. picture, uh, the one that I'm very familiar with, uh, a digital file. Um, yes. And, and how um, have, uh, who, has anyone adopted that definition or uh, is, is there an agreement uh, so it's right now we're in the earliest stage. It's, it's just been sort of publicly released for comment. And, you know, we could be, you know, one to five to unlimited number of years away from that ever getting adopted. So it's 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 it, actually in terms of it becoming law, we, we could be a ways away. But in terms of as lawyers just understanding what digital assets are, it's a great starting point. To, to, to be thinking about this and clarify in our own minds. And of course, we're going to segue, of course, quickly into what are securities and what is different about securities than digital assets. And this becomes, you know, incredibly important as we start to think about what the common characteristics of securities are versus the common characteristics of digital assets. Very interesting. So uh, for those of you who are thinking you're too late to blockchain, uh, have no worry five years to develop the definition of what yeah. digital asset is in, in, on the horizon. So you can enter now or in a few years or, you know, well, how, how it's not too late. The beginning is long. So point number one and point number two, you know, you mentioned this definition that is technology agnostic. As a, as a, as a tech lawyer, I tend to favor it quite a lot. Uh, because I, I am of the opinion that we should not be having new laws every time a new piece of technology comes up. We should maybe have tweaks or clarifications. That's one thing. Uh, having an entirely new law is, 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 a, is a big undertaking, uh, just given how laws don't change very often. Um, what are your thoughts about the tr of, of this trend of, of, of defining um, digital assets or, uh, or generally just having definitions that are technology agnostic? Yeah, I think I couldn't agree more, Olga. And I think, you know, by way of contrast, um, legislation was introduced in the prior Congress, and I, I think also in this Congress, um, uh, which now the name of which, um, the Token Taxonomy Act, there we go, the Token Taxonomy Act. And this act sought specifically to define digital assets, to define blockchain technology, and you know, it, it, it's very problematic in my view. Um, you know, it, it's it's not for lack of effort on the part of the drafts uh, persons um, or, or trying to be thoughtful or inclusive. It's just, it's a nearly impossible task. And, you know, I, I share your vision that we should, wherever possible, try and come up with technology neutral uh, definitions. So um, we'll see where all this goes. Um, in Europe, there is a proposed um, European-wide regulation called the Markets in uh, uh, MyCar, Markets in Crypto Asset Regulation, MyCar, that has been proposed, and they too are seeking to have a taxonomy and define, you know, digital assets in very ways. I don't know that we're ever going to fully escape specific technology technology specific definitions, but where possible, I think we're better served with more generic. 
uh, definitions if that if if we can. Yeah, sometimes we're just limited. It's hard to abstract because we're limited by the lack of experience uh, of things that are not here yet. So sometimes we just can't even imagine. We know how how broad this definition can be, but that, well, it's one thing to be limited by imagination. It's another thing to intentionally have technology specific definition. And somewhere between those two extremes, there is there is a very big a gray middle where lawyers can dance. I love that we took 17 minutes to even get to the to scratch the surface of what the digital asset is. So for those people who are, are listening, blockchain and, and digital assets definitely even at the definition stage, provide a very fertile ground for lawyers. There's quite a lot to discuss and a lot to develop. And again, we're in the very beginning. What I want to segue into is a conversation of where that intersection of, of digital asset and securities law, there's sort of a Venn diagram and there's an overlap. Yeah. How big is that overlap? And at what point that overlap and what the overlap sort of, what, what are the implications of that overlap? Absolutely, Olga. Well, so I, I, you know, regrettably, um, this is why this stuff takes a little bit of time. I think before we 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 dive into the overlapping part, let's just take a quick moment, quickish moment, um, to talk about um, what securities law is in and of itself. Because before we get to how and whether we apply that securities law to digital assets, we have to just have a, a grounding in securities law, and it, it's important to bear in mind that securities law uh, at the federal level in the United States is a relatively, relatively new thing. That is to say, our federal securities laws were promulgated only after the Great Depression in starting in 1933, 34, and then through 1940. So that was the, the, the period. But, but investments and securities existed somewhat self-evidently long before that period. And so Prior to there being federal securities law, there were state securities laws, and securities were, were a matter that was regulated by the states. Um, and you know, everybody knew, uh, for the most part, what they were talking about when they were talking about securities. The most obvious of which, by a long measure, is common stock in a company. That was a security. And there was a recognition, again, for many years before the Securities Act of 1933 was promulgated, that there was a special relationship between a company and its passive shareholders, that in particular, there were asymmetries of information between the company and its investors. Once you sort of disassociate the management of a company from its ownership, you create this, this uh, disconnect. And that that disconnect was fertile ground you know, for fraud or misunderstanding or problems. And even at the state level, that was perceived to be important to be regulated. So once the very idea of a company that was not managed by its, you know, sole owners came into play, you know, there was this need. Um, however, you know, we didn't really have consistent laws or thorough laws until the depression. And of course, in, you know, leading up to the depression, as everyone I think generally knows, there were tremendous abuses in the world of traditional securities, people leveraging themselves. And 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 so we, we needed something different, but I think it's important to understand where securities law comes from. I love how a lot of laws really come from traumatic experience um, and that trauma um, really colors sort of what happens for generations afterwards. So um, thank you for, thank you for that. So um, we'd love to continue this um, kind of intersection of, of digital asset and securities. There are some questions about NFTs that are coming 
Oh yeah, definitely a very interesting topic. Um, so so when when the federal securities laws were created. Um, the drafters sort of enumerated a variety of types of securities that seemed kind of self-evidently to deserve a special kind of regulation that was not the normal regulation for commercial problems. So when people have commercial dealings with each other, things go wrong all the time, but they don't, they're not treated specially. You know, I can defraud you, we can enter into a business deal and I cheat you, you know, just because that's not a securities transaction doesn't mean you don't have remedies. It was perceived that that securities required a special kind of regulation because of the special relationship between an owner of a security and a manager. And so there were certain securities that were self-evident, stocks, you know, bonds, and things like that. But the drafters knew at that time that they, they needed something more than just the obvious categories. And that more was a category they called investment contract. And an investment contract, unfortunately, was not defined by them. It had been used in the state laws that preceded the Securities Act of 1933, and it was sort of somewhat just chucked in there as a catch-all just in case anything was getting left out. And that that definition of investment contract becomes absolutely essential to the question of the allocate the application of securities laws to digital assets. So what could possibly go wrong when there is no uniform definition and 50 states can express creativity on it? So let, let, let's talk about that. Let's talk about yeah. uh, let's talk about investment contracts. So exactly. So at this point, you know, you'd be hard pressed, I think, to find someone who spent 10 minutes in the you know, blockchain digital asset space that hasn't heard of the quote unquote Howey test. Um, and, and we're not going to beat the horse here, but, but as at the highest of high levels, the Howey case was the first time the U.S. Supreme Court really grappled in depth with what exactly we're we talking about when we talk about an investment contract. What does that really mean? There was a couple of predecessor cases, but this really Howey was the most important case. And, and the Supreme Court in that case enumerated what has become the very well-known uh, Howey test. I actually had a tattooed on my arm. Really? You, yeah. No, not really, not really, not really. I mean, you tell me about something visual like tattoo, I'm going to ask you to show me. Yeah, how many test is an investment of money in a common enterprise uh, where the invest the person investing has a reasonable expectation of profit primarily from the efforts of others. That's the Howey test as as it was enumerated uh, by the Supreme Court in 1947, and it's kind of that test has stood the test of time. What's what's critical to understand here is that what the Howey test is trying to get at are schemes, investment schemes, where people are lured into an investment opportunity without actually using any traditional instrument. So I say to you, Olga, how'd you like to make some money? I'll tell you what, you know, I've got a chinchilla ranch out in Oklahoma, and I'll sell you some of these chinchillas, but don't worry about it. I'll take care of them. I'll raise them. I'll do whatever. And when the time comes, there'll be a coat. There'll be a lot of coats. And let me tell you, from just straight up chinchilla to coat, you could be looking at like 40, 50% return per annum. How are you in? Let's go. <laughs> right? That pitch, that pitch is the quintessential Howie investment contract pitch. I'm asking you to invest your money you're purchasing something, in this case, chinchillas that are growing, they're animals, right? They're not securities, they're animals. 
but you're the only reason you're doing it. You don't want them as pets. They have a little sharp teeth, you know, and they maybe they have rabies. Who knows? Right. You don't want them anywhere near you. No, no, they're, they're pretty aggressive. They're cute. They're pretty okay. aggressive animals. Right. So you don't want them. You, what you want is a profit. Right. You want to make money. You're going to put in some amount. Ten thousand dollars. You're hoping to get, you know, come back with a lot more than that. And why? Because of my efforts, I've got a farm, I'm raising them, I know what I'm doing, I've been in chinchillas my whole life. Let me tell you, I tell you anything you want to know about chinchillas. So that scheme, that arrangement is the Howie investment contract. It's not the chinchilla animal that is the Howie investment contract. Now, as we move rapidly <laughs> into <laughs> digital assets, we now start to say, how does this framework apply in particular to the ICO boom? And that's really where we, the, you know, the rubber hits the road. Let's talk about NFTs. Because exactly. Is there, right. Map, exactly right. If they're so equating to a painting on my wall, should, should the painting on my wall that may... There's a lovely painting on your wall. I can't quite see it. It looks lovely. But that's a yeah. great example. So let's imagine rather than a physical painting that you had a, you know, a screen that was displaying an NFT, right? Um, and, you know, it's hanging there because you think it's, it's beautiful or it suits your room or whatever main reason is. You purchased that painting or that NFT probably primarily for what we would call its consumptive use, to, to look at it, to enjoy it, to share it with your friends, whatever it may be. As a general matter, if you're purchasing something for a consumptive use, to, to enjoy it for whatever its, its purpose is, that will generally take you outside of being an investment scheme because you're not purchasing primarily for a profit. Any asset we buy, even the back of your mind says, but you never know, could always resell it, make more from it. You can buy stamps and sell them for more sometimes, right? It doesn't make it, you know, an investment contract. If you're, if the art gallery from which you purchased your painting or the online gallery from which you purchased the NFT, if they're not pitching you the idea that the NFT you're buying is really, you're going to make money and you should see once we get done promoting this NFT, it's going to be worth way more, come back and you'll sell it for a profit. That's really the difference. Now it gets complicated. So I would say in most cases, most NFTs that are, you know, especially those that are one of one, and even those that are one of a few are generally not going to be sec considered securities because again, they're not being sold in a promotional way as an investment scheme. You know, think of the chinchillas, right? They're not being sold in that way. You're, you know, you're, you're, you're buying it because you want to own that NBA top shop. Not because, you know, you're looking to necessarily make a profit. And yet there has been a recent case, I yeah. believe, in your jurisdiction that tries, I believe it's a plaintiff class action that yeah. is trying to assert that point. So um, I, uh, while theoretically I can understand sort of the difference for consumptive use that may at some point increase in value by virtue of its rarity, as opposed to efforts of others, you know, there is, you know, between this sort of, chinchilla example where I am relying on your efforts to make sure that my dollar gives me $40 return and my digital equivalent of a painting that clearly was maybe will appreciate in value but really was not kind of it's it's really was bought for the purpose for me to enjoy the painting and the digital artwork or the whatever the digital asset but you can kind of see that between those two extreme examples there's a really gray middle and look, this is not a new phenomenon with digital assets. So we can go back and think of 
other things that are sold for collectability, baseball cards, Pokemon cards, you know, Magic the Gathering cards, all, all kinds of things, um, uh, Beanie Babies, right? All of these things are sold somewhere in a gray area of pure collectability and you know, somewhere in the back of your mind, you're thinking, you know, I get a bunch of these or I get a rare gold version of whatever, and I can make a lot of money. The thing that's really changed with NFTs versus all of the things that preceded them is the incredible ease at which digital assets can be traded and moved. The ability for them to be quoted on exchanges and moved around and the speculative frenzy that has accompanied almost all digital assets. And Olga, I, I would not be surprised if you knew, for example, that there's at least one website, I think there may be more than one, that makes a market in high-end ladies' handbags. Are you aware of that? <laughs> I, 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 I don't know why you would guess that I have- I'm just, I'm just thinking, right? But, it, <laughs> but interestingly, right? So, so you could buy, and of course, sneakers is another great example. People know, people you know, stand online waiting for a rare sneaker drop, right? And, and not because they've already got like 100 pairs of sneakers and they want to wear the sneaker, like they may not have never even put it on because they want to keep it in, in mint condition and then later sell it on exchange. And, you know, frankly, many of the questions could arise with the physical sneakers or the ladies' handbags or things like that that have with the digital assets. The thing that's different with digital assets is that there's, an, it, there, there's almost no cost to create them. There's an unlimited number and they're readily tradable. And so we have this explosion of interest in NFTs in particular, you know, as something that sits between a pure collectible, a pure consumptive asset and something that also presents an investment. Louis, uh, we're coming to the end. Um, this conversation will be in multiple parts. The good news we have, we just scratched the surface. Um, and the very good news is that we're going to continue this conversation in securities law um, every Wednesday at this time with Louis for six to seven sessions, because I really want to have a much deeper appreciation and understanding of securities laws. And I would like folks in my network to benefit from that discussion. Uh, it's, it's, it's impossible to do it in 40 minutes or an hour. Um, I, I've tried to do it with my students at UC Berkeley in, in, in two hours and, and, and we scratch the surface. So we're going to do this conversation in parts, in seven parts. I've never done a conversation in seven parts. So Lewis, we're coming close to the end of the conversation about digital assets. Any parting words? And maybe, just maybe, what to expect next Wednesday? Well, that's fantastic. Thank you. I mean, the, the parting words are people sometimes can be very negative about securities regulations and, hey, they just don't get it. And, you know, the SEC doesn't understand. And, you know, we just want to be free. It's really important to understand the principles that our laws are trying to address. And there are many examples of people getting misled and taken advantage of. And the question really is, how do we balance these different things? And it's, it's a real challenge. There are very legitimate reasons why the laws work the way they do. Internalize the principles and you'll start heading at least, uh, I would say, in the right direction. In terms of, you know, next conversations, I think, you know, it starts to make sense again a little deeper into some of the history of enforcement by the SEC against digital asset projects. And we'll look at the beginning of that process, uh, the first statements that the SEC made on the subject in, in connection with um, 
a distributed, uh, decentralized autonomous organization known as the DAO, and then we'll we'll kind of carry that forward a bit and um, and 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 see how that kind of fits into the the high level stuff we've talked about today. So that'll be next week. I am looking forward to in-depth conversation on securities law. It has become my, one of my favorite conversations in the last few years. Uh, Louis, thank you so much for joining today. I, I always learn a lot from you and, and really thoroughly enjoy our conversation. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining. Stay safe, stay well, and have a great day. Thank you, everyone. Bye.